0: You are listening to a sermon from St Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters dundee.org.uk. For those of you who are brought up in the Free Church, especially in the Highlands, you will know that tune incredibly well. Although it's named after a Yorkshire place, it's one of the six tunes that uh, in Scottish psalmody, every congregation knew, and some of them knew only those. And I know that for one or two people, hearing Weatherby brings back memories, not all of them pleasant, because it's quite a mournful tune, and it can be sung really badly, but uh, you sang it well, so that was great. It's a great tune. Um, I want us to turn to God's Word, to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, and you'll find it on page one thousand two hundred and. 33 of the pew bible revelation chapter 1 i want to read from verse 9 i john your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in jesus was on the island of patmos because of the word of god and the testimony of jesus on the lord's day i was in the spirit in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, Therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later... The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now we said uh, goodbye this morning. We'll be around for a couple of weeks to Emma Jane and to uh, Megan. Uh, Two of our young people who are going off to be students elsewhere. And we are already beginning to welcome new students as well. And if I was asked, and I'm not going to, but I'm going to be asked, but I'll do it anyway. I'm going to give a word of advice to Emma-Jane and to Megan and to all you new students. One thing to do when you go away. And I know this is going to sound a little bit strange. Keep the Sabbath. Now, that sounds many people so strange. There's been an enormous change in church culture, in Christian culture and for those of different ages and different backgrounds it brings many um, different ideas, some of them very, very negative. But the trend at the moment in evangelical churches and, and, and in almost all churches is to move away from the notion of Sunday as the Lord's Day. Um, you might, it might be a day where you gather for a particular uh, service. You might go to church once. If, you, if you're really special, you go twice. Uh, or you. Um, but the, the whole idea of Sunday as the Lord's Day has been lost. And it, Bishop J.C. Ryle said that if Britain lost the Sabbath, it would lose Christianity. And I'm not sure that that is a particularly correct statement, but... I do think that we need to be uh, wary that we don't lose one of the great gifts that the Lord has given to us. Now, you're in here, you're you're not a Christian, you're thinking, what's this about keeping the Sabbath? Um, If if you've got any idea of it at all, you may be thinking, uh, this is about not hanging out your washing on a Sunday and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's not what this is about at all. This is about God saying to human beings, there's a pattern in life. Basically, you can't work all the time. You can't pray all the time. You you, you need to have a break. And so there's been a a pattern of a week set for many, many years. You know the, the Russian communists tried to change the week to 10 days. It didn't work. There's been a pattern of a week. Six days you labor, and on the seventh you take a rest. Now, in the Old Testament, that was the Saturday. When we come to this in John, the Lord's day is the Sunday. On verse 10, he says, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And I want to reflect on that and what it means and what the passage tells us about that. I wonder what would be a really good Sunday, because for some... Sunday's changed in this culture in Dundee. For example, we hope to do a church plant up in Charleston. And if we start that from scratch, it's going to be very difficult to do it on a Sunday morning. Why? Because Sunday morning is now kids' sports time, whereas that used to be Saturday mornings. Sunday's also become shopping time. Do you know, it's an interesting, just a little bit of history, that um, when the British Parliament drew up what they called Sabbath or Lord's Day legislation in Queen Victoria's time, they didn't bother doing anything for Scotland. There was no legislation on Sunday in Scotland. Why? Because Queen Victoria and the parliaments just assumed the Scots have always kept the Sabbath and they always will, which is why paradoxically now the Sunday laws in England are a lot stricter than there are virtually none in in Scotland. There were none anyway. And I think it's a shame that we've lost that in Scotland. But what would be, what would make a really good Sunday? Some people are lying in the morning, um, Sunday breakfast, Sunday brunch. Maybe for a, you're a Christian, you go to church on a Sunday morning and you chill out and relax. Sunday evening, you're, you're pretty shattered. And uh, maybe it is very counterintuitive, even in church circles, to have an evening service. I think we have a lot of problems. I think that we are very, very tired um, I know what it's like, uh, not very much, because I'm up here, but uh, in recent weeks I've been sitting, and uh, sometimes it's true that some of you, and look at you just now, and you can keep pretending all you want, but you're, you're going to really struggle not to have just a few, a few winks, and you know, for some reason, you were fine until you sat down, and you managed the praise okay, and as soon as I started, your mind start wandering everywhere else. And you just, you just, sometimes this overwhelming tiredness hits you. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And then you go away from church and you're fully invigorated having had a wee snooze. Um, and I know that that's the way it is. We get tired in, in so many different ways. We're also incredibly busy, aren't we? I think again, particularly of students. I don't know how many times I've met with students and guys, You really, really need not to write essays on a Sunday. If you've got an essay due on the Monday, get it done by Friday or Saturday. And to so many, even Christian students, that's just complete anathema. It's just, what? Are you crazy? And uh, and we we note in exam times that the library is more likely to be full than the church. Um, And in a way, I find that quite sad. We're very busy, not just students, but all of us. We've got lots and lots of things to do. And I, I don't presume upon that. So why should we bother? What would make a difference? What would cause it so that if you come, and let's say even you're not a Christian, and you said, "You know, if I knew it was going to be like that, I would have brought more people. I would have in- encouraged people to come." I have noticed a kind of weariness with meetings. We were uh, at the CLC meeting last night, and. You know, there's meetings all the time, I guess, and I have a lot of sympathy with this. But it was just a handful of people. And I know that some of the people who were organizing were very disappointed in that. And I I, I understand that. But that's so often happening in churches as well. So, without going the legalistic route, what makes a difference? I think this. Verse 10, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. John was in trouble. I am struggling to think of a time when the Christian church has been in more difficulty than at the time that this was written. Probably about 60 years after the death of Jesus. Everything initially, occasional persecutions and so on, but went so well. 3,000 converted in one sermon at uh, Pentecost. Paul being converted, taking the gospel as far as Spain, Rome. Many, many people becoming Christians in North Africa. The gospel spreading east as well and north. I don't know if it made it as far as Latvia in the first century, but it was, it it spread enormously, rapidly. And, There was an anticipation and a hope that Jesus would be returning very soon. The early Christians greeted one another with the phrase, Maranatha, even so, come soon, Lord Jesus, because many of them expected Jesus to come back in their lifetimes. And then came the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And then came the persecutions of Nero, and the Roman Empire turned against Christianity. And then the apostles died. Some were executed, some martyred. And by the time we get to John, he's the last one. And he's probably in his 90s. And he's on an island. And this is not the island of Lewis. It's not a blessed island or the island of Sky. This is Patmos. And I have actually been to Patmos and there's no water there. Which is important actually for helping understand some of what's going on in the book. The water had to be shipped in And he's being guarded by Roman soldiers. And he is, as he says, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And he's hearing about the church in Greece, which is being persecuted, and in Turkey, which is being persecuted, and in Jerusalem, which is being persecuted. And all over, it looks as though the devil is going to win. And that's how this book of Revelation comes. John himself had been banned from preaching. There was a real fellowship amongst the Lord's people, but it was a fellowship of suffering, of persecution, and one that called for endurance. And in that context, this happened. On the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sebaste, Caesar's Day, as the Romans knew it, observed weekly in certain areas. Maybe, maybe some early Christians just borrowed the name even. Called it that. But they called it the Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day, John was in the Spirit. And we know that the early Christians, whether in the catacombs in Rome, whether in uh, some of them would have met in buildings, but not many, that they met together on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. He was in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? It means here that he was receiving some special Revelation that he was lost in some kind of ecstasy, not aware of time and space, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. And John had this kind of experience and revelation is the record of that. And it is an, it is an extraordinary book. He heard this voice, this loud voice, like a trumpet. I think that, by the way, is amazing too. Um, like a trumpet, that comes from the Old Testament. In fact, virtually every single verse in Revelation, you cannot understand if you don't understand the Old Testament. Exodus 19 says this, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. God spoke to John. Jesus spoke to John like the voice of a trumpet. Now, again, I think what's amazing about this, and I've read this many, many times, and it's only um, this week, actually, that I read this and thought, yeah, that's true. If John's 90 years old, if this is 60 years after Jesus has died, it's highly probable that John had not heard the voice of Jesus at all for 60 years having listened to him almost every day for three years, and then nothing. Jesus had gone. He descended into heaven. Now, um, John was inspired by the Spirit to write the gospel, to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I'm sure he heard the voice of Christ in the sense that we understand. But did he actually hear the literal voice as here? I don't know. But if he did, it must have been an absolutely amazing thing. And in that he had this brilliant vision, brilliant in the sense of shining from verse 12. I saw the seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. Again, it's an extraordinary picture of Jesus being amongst his people. John is frustrated, I can imagine, because he wants to be with the church in Ephesus. He wants to be with the church in Rome. He wants to be with the suffering and persecuted people of the Lord. And the Lord is telling John, I'm actually with them. They don't need you. I'm with them. And it's an important lesson to learn. Hebrews 2 says this, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And this is, this is Jesus speaking. Using the Psalms, Jesus says this. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. It is an extraordinary image of Jesus being with his people, singing with them. We, um, in the modern church, sometimes people talk of worship leaders. Mr. Henderson there uh, is not really a worship leader. I'm not a worship leader. The worship leader in the church is Jesus Christ. And he is amongst his people. Where two or three are gathered in my name, Matthew 18, 20, there I am in the midst. And Jesus is saying to John, not just I am with you, but I am with my people. Wherever they are. That's one of the most extraordinary, for me one of the most wonderful reasons about being... See, in church is the wrong phrase because it carries the idea, doesn't it, of being in the building. But being together with the Lord's people. Together with people whom God has called, not whom we've called. Not people who just happen to be our friends or people who we just like. But it's just lovely coming to worship with God's people and knowing that Christ is present with his people. came out your house this evening to come here and your neighbor comes up to you and says where are you going? I wonder if you'd say I'm going to see Jesus. That would get an interesting reaction I suspect. But that's what you're going to do. I'm going to sing with Jesus. I'm going to hear Jesus talk. I'm going to be with Jesus. Now I realize there are a lot of people who say well Jesus is with me wherever I go and so on. That's true. At one level it's true and at another level it's not true. Because Many of us find that it's only collectively as we are together that we experience the presence of Christ. And that we are in the spirit on the Lord's day. There are golden lampstands. The gold stands for purity. How does that purity, why is that there? Because the gold is purified in the fire. They are the shining lights for Jesus in the midst of a hostile world. And that's another great reason for us being together. Because some of you will go tomorrow and there will be hostility towards you. Some of you will experience hostility in your families, hostility in your work, hostility in the culture, apathy, indifference, ignorance. And it's really hard to be a Christian within that context. And Christ says that he calls his people together and we We share together his presence together, and that refines us, it helps us, it builds us up. I had a meeting this week with a man who's a teacher, and he likes to write things. He's a bit like me, he likes to write things. Well, he's been called into um, his headmaster's office and told, you have to stop writing about Jesus in the newspapers. And he was basically threatened with losing his job. That's appalling. Someone like that. Someone like you. Someone like me. We need to meet together and to encourage one another. Some of you will work in a context or will be in a family situation where it's just fantastic. You, you can could, you could share together. But many of you tomorrow, you won't have that. He meets the Son of Man. Daniel 7. That's a title from Daniel. It's a technical title really. In my vision I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. That's why we were singing that by the way. That's in one sense it is religious jargon. But it's good biblical jargon. And. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man speaks of the real manhood and humanness of Christ, but it really speaks of the divinity of Christ. It was kind of taking on uh, an, an Old Testament prophecy about Christ. And I can think that's wonderful. Christ has dominion. John is in Patmos surrounded by the soldiers of an emperor who thinks that he controls everything. And Jesus comes to him and says, no, I have the authority. I have the authority. He couldn't keep you here if I didn't want you here. And there are people today, there are Christians in Sudan and there are Christians in uh, Iraq. And there are Christians in Syria and there are Christians in North Korea and there are Christians in China. And they know what this means. They know exactly what this means. Because they are in prison, but they are also in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And they know who has the ultimate authority. And I love the fact that it is people, and Revelation will go on to stress this, of every tribe, language, and so on. It was just lovely this morning. I mean, I love, one of the advantages of being in a city like Dundee is we are so multicultural. Um, we, We are, you know, I keep saying to my friends from Edinburgh, look, This is the centre of culture in Scotland, Dundee, because you've got Dundonians, which Edinburgh people don't have, and we've got all the other people, which they might have, but put Dundonians together with, I don't know, Malaysians. It's a wonderful combination. And it was just great this morning to meet some new people from Malaysia, who of course are going to be doctors, uh, and so on, because you see someone from Malaysia, you think you're going to be a doctor, and that's wonderful. And it was wonderful last week to meet somebody from uh, Japan and Vietnam. And people from very, very different cultures. And it is an extraordinary thing that no matter where you go in the world, um, we just say goodbye to Natasha, Latvia. She's going to be the only counselor, or there'll be two of them now, two counselors in the whole of Latvia. And we know one of them. And I think that is is wonderful. And I think, again, we're reminded just of how Christ church, that's why we, we do pray for missions and so on, how just wonderful it is in that way. So John has this vision of Christ, the robe and the sash that are spoken of there. I'm just not going to go into the details of this, but they speak of his high priestly character. They speak of his finished work on the cross. They speak of his intercessory ministry, his praying for his people in glory. You know, we spend a relatively short amount of time in prayer and the services on Sunday morning and evening. Some people, well, it depends who's praying. Sometimes it can be longer, but um, don't you just love the fact when you say, will you pray for me? I was asked by a couple of people this week, will you pray for me? You say, of course i pray for you. How often did I pray for them during the week? Maybe once or twice. For how long? Who knows? Not very long. But Christ intercedes for his people christ is praying for his people and that for me is just a just an incredible and wonderful thing and then we go on to this description you see in verse 14 the hair on his head was white like wool now please this is not a literal description of jesus Um, what does this speak of the whiteness the snow and the wool we're going to look, or we won't look, but you, if you went on, you would l- read about the church in Laodicea. Laodicea was famous for its wool industry. Whiteness, in the context of this culture, spoke of eternity and divinity and the purity of the ancient of days. To us, if someone's got white hair, it means they're getting old and they're decaying. I'm sorry if, if you've got white hair. Um, usually, that's, that's what it means. Um, you know, if, if your hair's kind of jet black, you know, wow, that's a sign that you're young. Um, if you don't have hair, that's a sign that you're intelligent. Um, <laughs> if, sorry. Um, but for us, white hair, oh, your hair's going white. You know, and you see people, they'll be in the mirror and they'll go, white hair, well, I need to get rid of it or I'll need to dye it. But in this culture, white hair was a sign of, of eternity. It was a sign of, of growing old and yet not losing the vigor. And it's saying about Jesus, there he is with his white, he was white as wool, the hair on his head was white as wool, as white as snow. What's it say? He's saying to John, the church might have decayed, the situation in the culture might have decayed, you might be decaying because you're an old man, but I don't decay and I don't change. I'm the same. His eyes were blazing. Blazing eyes. Daniel ten six Eyes like burning torches. No one has a gaze like Jesus. You know what it's like. They, some, well, maybe you don't, but sometimes there are people who, who look at you and they stare at you and there's just a blank look in their eyes and they're actually quite scary. And then there are other people who look at you and you think, oh my goodness, they can see right through me. They know everything. They are really, really scary people. They look into your eyes. Well, here's Jesus, and his eyes are like blazing fire. He knows. He knows. He penetrates even to the depths of the heart. When you come and you worship Jesus together with his people on the Lord's day, one of the things that should happen is you should realize all pretense, forget it. There is no point. I cannot hide from the eyes of Christ. Verse 15. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. What's that about? That's his restless providence. His, his continually working out his purposes. Treading down his enemies. Executing his judgments. Burnished bronze carries this idea of um, purity and might. And again John's being told. Here are these Roman soldiers. They're marching around in their armor. One person, Jesus, has feet that can trample on them all. Don't worry. Don't don't be scared of ISIS. Don't be scared of the people who would persecute. Here is Jesus and his voice. Look what it says about his voice. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. That's from Ezekiel 43. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. I don't know. I'm sure most of you have been to a waterfall. Um, I was going to mention the Linadee just up uh, the just up the road, which is just it's a great waterfall. But it doesn't really compare with Niagara. I went to Niagara once; so it was just oh, in, just absolutely incredible. And it's the noise that really gets you. And John is on the island of Patmos, and he hears the sea pounding the shores of Patmos. And Christ is telling him, using that imagery, using that language, that the revelation of Jesus Christ, the word of Jesus Christ, pours out like this rushing water. He has so much to teach us and so much to say to us. And he's saying to John, even though you're 90, even though you were with me, even though you wrote the gospel, even though you wrote these first three letters, even though you pastored a church in Ephesus and elsewhere, even though all these things... I have so much to tell you. And that's another great reason why we gather together because we're coming not, you know, sometimes, and I have to say, particularly ministers and Christian workers, this is what they're like. They'll come to church and they sit like it's the X factor. I don't mean they sit like that, but, uh, you know, if there was, if, if they could be sitting behind with kind of XO, whatever it is behind, they're, they're, they're sitting in judgment. Oh, I wonder if that's, yeah, that's quite, that was quite a good sermon, that one. Or that was okay, or that was okay. And they're missing the point. Christian workers especially, missing the point. The point is not how good or how bad the the sermon was in different ways, and whether we sit in judgment, whether we're going through a performance. The question is, are we meeting with Christ, and are we hearing Christ speaking to us? His right hand holds the seven stars. Verse 16. That's the universe, or or both actually, the church. He has this sharp double-edged sword. That's his authority to teach and to judge. Hebrews 4.12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We're so confused and we're so battered and we're so discouraged and we wonder what's happening. And Jesus says, come, come, meet with me, meet with me, and I will tell you. And what he does is he tells us his word. Now, that's why so many modern prophecies that people say are prophecies, they're so banal. They're so pathetic because they're, they tend to be so very me focused. Whereas what we really need to hear in a world of great confusion is who Jesus is. You know, if I didn't believe absolutely in the sovereignty and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ, I think I'd just give up. Because even this week, what have I heard about? I've heard about the Chinese economy going down the tubes, and that's really, compared with Greece, that's really going to stuff us up. I've heard about Planned Parenthood in the United States, and I've seen a bit of it, and I can only watch a little bit of it, because it's just so distressing. Sitting, negotiating with people about how they're going to extract babies before they kill them, In order to sell the parts to research companies. And I've had people in the name of tolerance. And liberalism and kindness and research and so on. Say this is the right thing to do. And you think how is this possible. That we get to this stage. And you would give up. If it wasn't for the fact. That God speaks. And God reveals. And God says. Because in John's day. You know what, John, he probably witnessed this and he certainly would have heard about it. We know that Nero did this before this was written. When Nero, who was crazy, tried to burn down part of Rome, he blamed the Christians for doing it. And you know what he did? He lined the Christians up for about 45 miles at certain paces and made them as human torches. And John would be thinking, These are people I know. These are my brothers and my sisters. What is going on? And Jesus is saying, I know, I know. And he gives him this tremendous vision about how evil will not ultimately triumph. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Too intense for sinful human eyes to behold. Jesus, the light of the world. John had seen that to some extent before, hadn't he? At the transfiguration. Christ has a face and he would know his face. He would know his face personal, and glorious. And so what does John do? He falls down as dead, verses 17 to 20. He is overwhelmed and overpowered. I kind of, in a sense, I kind of long for that. In another sense, I don't long for it. Um, Sometimes we say things or we hear things in church or in other contexts, which deeply move us and they overpower us and we don't want to be overpowered in that way. And yet I am absolutely certain that if the Spirit of God is present with us, there's very often a sense of stillness, but sometimes there's also this overwhelming sense of being overpowered. And John certainly had that and he was scared. He was scared. A similar experience you find in Isaiah 6.5 or Ezekiel one twenty eight or Daniel 7.28 I think sometimes we have such a low view of Jesus that when we ask him to come amongst us, it will be in such a way that we will be struck, just, just awed by his presence, awed at how glorious he really, really is. There's an old, old uh, chorus that I, I still love. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Sunday morning, Sunday evening, when we meet together here, we need to pray, not that all our problems will be solved and everything will be sorted, we pray for that too, but we need to pray that we will see Jesus and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace, the sun, Hebrews one three says, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. How can we stand before Him? How can we be in the presence of such glory? Simple, Christ puts out His hand and gives John the answer. He placed His right hand on me and said, "Do not be afraid." And then He spoke about who. He is. We come into the presence of the glorious God, the God before whom even the angels veil their faces. We come into his presence as his people because Jesus brings us. Because Jesus says, These are mine. I am the first and the last. He's saying he's divine. He's the first word in creation, he's the last word in history. I was dead. I was dead. He boasts about it. I was dead. He became man and he died for us. And for all eternity, we will stand and be utterly amazed that there is someone who sits on the throne of heaven in a human body with holes in his hands, looking, a lamb looking as if it had been slain. But, he says, I am alive forever and ever. You think you've got it tough in Patmos or wherever? I went to hell. Maybe not in the literal sense, but hell in all his experience of it. I died. I took on your hell. I suffered your hell in a moment of time. And I am alive forever and ever. The resurrection, the living one, the one who is life. So that if they come and they kill you. And if they kill Christians and if they, they can't. They cannot take that away. I hold the keys of death and of Hades The keys of death and of Hades. See, if you're not a Christian, by the way, what you're faced with is this: death is the end for you. or worse still, if the Bible is true, hell is the where you will end up. And you don't hold the key for that. Christ holds the keys for that. It's the most important keys. To hold of all. Uh, we used to, I used to do um, free church camps. And we used to stay in schools. And I was advised right at the very beginning. You need to find the person with the power. I said who's that? The headmistress. No, no. The janitor. They've got the keys. The person who has the keys. They're the ones who really, really count. You can't get in the building. It's no use to you. Who holds the keys to everything in our life? Who holds the keys to the most important things of all? It's just surely, simply Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. Death no longer reigns and the terrors of hell are gone. He controls when we die, how we die. And he's been through death for us. Christ has the keys like the jailer. You don't have the keys, but he has the keys. Right, therefore, what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. Because he's saying, I know. Jesus is saying, nothing surprises me. You know, There are Christians who go, there are things that God doesn't know. And God gets a bit surprised by what's happening. And God wants us to do this. And and if we don't do this in our lives, then, then that's plan A gone, And we've got plan B and plan C. Listen, God knows everything from the beginning to the end. And Jesus says, look, you live in this world which at times it must feel like hell. And it can be so distressing. But don't be afraid. I hold the keys. I know. I know, you may not see it like that. We um, had the privilege of visiting Cory ten Boom's house in Harlem, uh, just outside Amsterdam. I have to say that for those of, if you've never read The Hiding Place, you've got to read The Hiding Place. It's one of the absolute classics. But for those of us who read The Hiding Place, you just, there's only about 20 of you can get in the room. That house is so tiny. It's absolutely tiny. And, you think about two families living in there and you think about the Jews who came to that house and they were hidden in Cory's bedroom behind a wall and you, you see behind the wall and you see the cupboard and you see all of that. And to be in that, it was really, uh, it was actually incredibly moving. Not least because the group we were in included a family of Israeli Jews. It was just extraordinary. And there's a, a bookmark, there's a picture on the wall she made and there's a bookmark from it and I've, I've kept the bookmark because I love it because on one side you look at it and it's a mess and you turn it round and it's a crown it's a tapestry and it's a crown and then there's a poem and a hymn that Corrie ten Boom wrote and I think it's exactly what John is being told look it looks a mess It looks as though this has all gone wrong. It looks as though this is terrible. But I know, I know, and I am working out my own purposes. And I think we've got to take that for Scotland today. And we've got to take that for our own lives. And we've got to take that for this church. You hear about this person being ill. You hear about that incident happening. You hear in the context of the wider culture and you go, oh Lord, how long and how long? And Christ comes and he assures us, he gathers us together and he says, listen, listen this isn't surprising me. I know, I know. And we are so reassured and so comforted in that way. I don't like these kind of roller coaster things, you know, dippers and all that. And uh, um, I went on one with Emma Jane when we were on holiday and it was an old American style 1950s wooden thing. And I thought, oh, that'll be safe enough. It'll be okay. I don't mind. I'm not going on one of these Python up and down. And there was a ridiculous one that was like 300 feet up. And it was just a sheer drop. And I thought, that's lunatic. I ain't touching that with a barge full. And she was pleading me to go with her. But no way. So I thought, I'll go on the nice, you know, rickety-rackety, you know, wooden roller coaster. It was big and high and stuff. But I thought, it can't be. What could be wrong with that? Oh, my goodness. I'm not doing it again. It was just, it just started rattling. I kept thinking, it's going to collapse. It's going to fail. It's going to... But... You didn't completely panic because you're strapped in and because you trust the people who've made the place and all the rest of it. Do you know, I think sometimes our lives are a little bit like that. That sometimes you look as though you're at the sheer drop and you're about to drop down into the abyss and you say, well, wait a minute, I'm strapped in because Christ has got me. Christ holds me. Christ keeps me. It's a tremendous reassurance. And I don't think it's wishy-washy at all. In fact, I finish by just reading from Romans 8, which, of course, John would have known. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. In all things. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That glorious image that we've seen "...that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined he also called, those he called he also justified, those he justified he also glorified." What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things?" Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'll tell you what makes a Sunday special. When you go away home knowing the love of God experiencing the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It means that you do know who holds the future. You can face tomorrow with all its uncertainties, with all its illness, with all its worries, with all its fears. You know that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, there may be some very, very super-duper, extraordinary, special saints who are constantly walking around, utterly assured of that, and they know that all the time. They're the kind of people who say, I don't need the Lord's day because every day is Jesus' day for me, and I don't need times of prayer because I'm praying all the time. I'm not sure I believe anybody that says that, but I know it's not me, and I know it's not most of you. I I don't think it's any of you. So that's why we need the gift that God has given us of the Lord's day. That's why we need his word. Because we need to see Jesus. And because every Sunday we come as beggars almost. Saying Lord I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. I'm broken. I'm confused. I'm worried. And Jesus says come. Come and see the glory of the one whose hand you're in. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that just as John faced changing circumstances and real difficulties, yet he was able to know you, the one who does not change, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Help us to know that. I pray especially, Lord Jesus, that you would be with those who are faced with such terrors and fears within themselves that they don't know how they can cope. Help them to look away and to look to you. Help them to hear the still, small voice and the rushing waters. Help them, O Lord, to know that your eyes are upon them, that your hands upon them. Lord, each of us as we go this night into a new week, grant that we would live for your glory. And for those of us here who as yet don't know you, Lord, draw near to us that we may know you and live for you. In your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing um, a song we haven't, I don't think, sung for a while, but it was just so appropriate for this. You think, well, that was John. What about us? Well, the answer is very simple. Yesterday, today, forever. Jesus is the same. We'll have the words come up on the screen. Uh Oh, how sweet the glorious message, simple faith my claim. Is that it? No. No, that is not it. I didn't think so. Ah, There's another one. Can you go and help, Dave? I thought you might have changed it.